from my Punjabi, my Sikh friends, but then also from my best friends who have nothing to do with art culture and community. Um, and that's made me more and more comfortable with like my body hair and my case. I guess I just want like young gores to know that they're loved and to know that like there are bandies out there in the world who care about them and that like they are not a burden um, and that their feelings are like not so um, annoying that like we don't want to listen to them like I want like younger gores to know that they can like reach out for help if they need it like you are not a burden you are not like like a tax on someone's energy like you deserve to be heard um, and cared about and loved. want to acknowledge and respect anyone whose story has been overshadowed or unheard. We hope to give them a space and a platform to share their journey, and may they always be met with compassion. Welcome back to another episode on the Rahal podcast. Today we are joined by Jasmine Gar. Jasmine Gar is a Sikh Punjabi author, illustrator, and poet exploring themes of feminism, womanhood, social justice, and love through her writing. She has been named a rising star by Vogue magazine and has been featured by Elle magazine, Teen Vogue, and many other publications. She's completed her bachelor's in arts in English with a focus on creative writing, and she's now completing her master's. Her debut um, poetry and prose collection, When You Ask Me Where I'm Going, was published in 2019, and her sophomore novel, If I Tell You the Truth, was published in 2021, and they're both available on her website. So, how are you, Jasmine? I am good i've had like i was just saying before we started recording that i had like weird dreams last night um which like threw off my morning but i'm feeling good now wash my face feeling good um feeling a lot more centered <laughs> and i'm so excited to be here i'm so excited to be talking to you yeah i'm really really happy i've looked up to you for a really long time i think i discovered you because it was a discovery for me because it was that impactful your books left a really wonderful they just have a really wonderful place in my life. And so I, I think I discovered you earlier in the pandemic. And at that point, just I think when you asked me where I'm going was out and I flipped through it faster than anything. Anyone who knows me in our personal life knows that I have thousands of books and I never finish them. I'll read like the first five pages. I'll order another book. Read the first five pages. Order another book. But um, that and then if I tell you the truth, I stayed up until 3 a.m. before my finals. And I was like, who cares about my you know, finance exam, I'm going to read this. But I was listening to one of your episodes with 88 cups of tea, tea pot, cups of tea. Thank you. Yeah. It's 88 cups of tea. And you were talking about how you never felt represented in literature. And I remember when I was reading, if I tell you the truth, there were like little hints of kuch kuch and music. And as you're reading the book, there's like words of Punjabi in there. And I don't know why that was it was, it was a starstruck moment because I was like, I've never seen this. I've never seen an English book just having my language in there every right now and then. And Kush Kushota for me is such a powerful movie. I can, I promise you, I could bet you a billion dollars on this. I can recite the entire movie front to back. You're kidding. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not joking. I When I was younger, I would come from school and I would sit down every day, watch that movie. That is jokes. Yeah. You know what? Um, I don't watch a ton of 
like Bollywood. And that was the one like film I watched when I was a little kid. And same, like we watched it like a lot because it was like the only like VHS we had at home <laughs> of like a Bollywood film. So we would watch that one um, and it just like stuck and it felt like intuitive because I was writing, um, I was writing the beginning of the book set in the early 2000s and I wanted it to feel like it was referencing those classic experiences that South Asians yeah. had at that age in that era. Um, and I had to do the question with that reference. Um, but I love that the book felt resonant to you because you saw yourself in it. I think that that was a huge thing in writing the book the way that I did. Um, and writing all of my books, really. I grew up like crazy obsessed with reading. I was like a huge like fantasy reader. I would walk into doors in grocery stores and walls and things like reading books because I just wouldn't look up. I would like take my books everywhere with me <laughs> and it annoyed my family. <laughs> but that's kind of that's just the kid that I was. But, you know, when you grow up like reading books that, you know, you that transport you and and make you feel whole and safe and like alive, but you never see yourself in those stories. I think that like you're missing something really fundamental when you're told that like, you just don't belong in your adventures you don't belong in the adventures that you want to like um go on i think that there's something really yeah. sad about that and i think that it's so cool that we're living in a day and age now where sick children and punjabi children and like children of color can go to bookstores and just like see parts of themselves or they can go online and like find stories that look like themselves and know that they have a place in you know all the magic that they love about you know art and media and and books as well and that's why i do what i do that's so beautiful and i totally agree with you i love the work that like sick readathon is doing kind of connecting all of those authors together gummo's case is a book that just came out and i have lived through the book a couple of times at my friend's house at my family friend's house and it's so wonderful to see uncle and auntie read that to their younger children that kind of connection with your case is such a complex conversation especially for Gars and especially for six, like, you know, I, I understand that it is, it's such, it's such a vulnerable conversation for South Asians and South Asian women as well. And then I think with Sikhi, when you tie in that faith-based aspect to it, it becomes a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit harder to like navigate through in this Western kind of sphere. And I also like, now that you mentioned Gamal's case, like, I would just want to say like, Bilginder Gars art and her books and just like everything that she does for six children is like, like revolutionary and so yeah. beautiful in like ways that I've like never like imagined like to be able to like imagine like being a sick kid in like a fantastical way um and to, to like see the beauty and the magic of yourself like come to life through her illustrations through like like animal characters and all these awesome I things know. that she does like there's something so heartwarming and like healing and like just transportive about it and I'm so grateful that she does what she does for sure, I completely agree, yeah. So you went to London recently. I did. Which sounds so exciting. You went by yourself. And I'm about to go to India in May all by myself. Which Are you I'm serious? About. Okay, cool. Yes. So as like a younger gore like and traveling, I think that's so cool that you are like putting yourself out there and doing that because it took me a while to get to that point where I was like, yeah, like I feel confident traveling the world by myself. Like I remember I would have been in my undergrad like in the middle of my undergrad when I first did like a solo trip and I was um I was doing a study abroad in London um in East London 
and it was my first time living away from home my first time like living in a dorm <laughs> like when, for, like i'd been in university but i'd been living at home while going to going to uni and um <laughs> I remember being terrified that I would just get lost on the tube. Um, terrified of just like being like isolated. I was scared that I would get lonely. And like I like weirdly all these things that I was stressing about before I left did not even manifest. Like I was genuinely so happy to be like exploring the world. Like just having my own space for the first time was like life changing. Just to be like sitting with my yeah. thoughts in complete solitude for like a few months. I had my friends there like into other parts of the city and other parts of the country, but like a lot of the days it was just like me and like wandering around by myself and and it wasn't lonely. And I think that the reason it wasn't lonely was because I was getting to know myself. Um and I think that we need to be able to be our own best friends in order to like just yeah. just live as human beings in this world when, you know, like I think that we we sometimes lean into um, external like like friendships and things like that as like a crutch um, and I think that there's a lot of beauty in just like getting to know yourself and and spending time with your own thoughts and not being afraid of your own thoughts and and that quiet yeah. when no one is there um, so it was like the best thing I ever did and then I just like kept traveling after that like um, I, yeah, like you said, like I went to London um, this year on my own, rented like a little flat for myself, just hung out, like wandered through like Sunday markets and went to museums and like took myself out for dinner. <laughs> it was just like such a oh cute like like time for myself and just like documented everything through like pictures and like I also when I'm traveling, like I take a sketchbook with me and I'll just like kind of sketch things that I see around me and my surroundings. Oh. Um, so I had like a, I had a, like a day where I just sat in a museum and sketched random, um, like sculptures and things. And it was so fun. Yeah. It was just like a good time. And I'm still like daydreaming about like going back or going somewhere else. When you're living alone, there's like peaks and valleys. Like I've had days where I'm just like, I can't, like I can't just be alone today. Like I need to go hang out with my friends. And I've also had days where like, I'm like, wow, like I feel, I'm feeling my solitude and I just need to like meditate on this <laughs> and just like turn yeah. on Girtin and just like realize that like my best friend is like within me <laughs> in my soul yes. already. And like, I know that because like I've lived in this body for 29 years and that's been my experience, like just as a sick um so like sometimes i will find that like i will be so uncomfortable with the solitude but that but that there's growth in that discomfort um and that i'm getting closer to like my highest self or my truest self by facing how uncomfortable i am rather than running away from it which is sometimes like what we do which is human yeah which is completely human yeah no no i for sure i agree with that like i for so long I'm 20 or so, so far in my life, I've only traveled with family. And whenever we go, you know, it's a safety net. Not my dad's there, my mom's there. Um, but when we went to California recently, we went for two and a half weeks um, last summer. We went and lived with um, my Jachu in LA. And then we met my other Jachu in um, SF. And we were there for two and a half weeks. But Jasmine, I think we went to like nine or 10 different cities. My dad rented a car. We went from LA to Death Valley. We went from Death Valley to Sequoia, from Sequoia National Park to Yosemite, from there to um, the Bay Area, from there to SF, from there to like LA. So it was like, I think we backpacked like the Western seaboard. And I want to ask you, when you go travel, do you do staycations or are you that person who's like, 
6 a.m let's go on a hike and i don't know pack the entire day with things i am like very much a crossover person like i will have days where i will happily just stay in this flat and in my head i'm like i paid for this place so i better just soak in the presence of my solitude in this flat (laughs) as like the punjabi (laughs) i am like get my money's worth um and then i'll have other days where i'm like um i just want to wander the city like so like i'm I'm very much a morning person i'll get up really early and just get ready get out of the house and start like exploring like i love just like going to museums going and finding cool places on like airbnb experiences like kind of off the Mm -hmm. beaten path kind of like art shows and like classes and like cooking classes and things like that um and then like exhaust myself to the point that i'm like yeah it's time to go home now and then i'll like go home and i i love hiking i love like going you know on like nature excursions and things like that um but i'm also like the kind of person where like because i'm an introvert or like maybe like an ambivert i will have like a very social day and then the next day is like a decompressing from being social day (laughs) where i'm just like i need to sit by myself and just chill and like watch netflix or like read or journal or something um because Mm -hmm. i get burnt out really easily (laughs) so I'll, i'll do both but like with a lot of patience in between yeah no i totally feel that i'm annoyingly an extrovert to where like i went to a restaurant with my friend the other day and she smacked me on the side like 12 times because I became friends with the waitress, I became friends with the manager of the cafe, and then I went to a Starbucks line, and I became friends with the barista, and then I went to my doctor, and I became friends with a medical assistant, and she gave me a hug at the end of the day, or at the end of the appointment, um, but then, you know what, I crashed really quickly too, the next day I'm like, no one speak to me, I don't know who any of you people are. That's amazing, I wish, I, I'm just such a, like, socially anxious person in certain, like, in certain moments, like, I, it's so funny because I perform on stages and I talk, like, for a living, <laughs> but then, like, I get yeah. off stage and I'm so nervous to, like, make friends, <laughs> and I wish I was just that person that could just, like, walk up to folks and, like, be friendly, but, um, it just, like, I, that little kid is still in me somewhere <laughs> where I'm just, like, can I, I just quietly sit in the back of the room and just, like, observe and not be, like, noticed? Yeah. It's a process. <laughs> No, I get that. But you know what? You say that, but I don't get that vibe from you at all. I get that. I get a very, just such a, like, giving aura and energy, just kindness flowing out of you. Like, you've been so wonderful talking right now already. And when we met for the first time, I don't I don't get that vibe from you personally, but I can understand. That's so that interesting. Probably, like, well, I'm yeah. glad because, like, deep down in my heart, I'm still, like, an introvert. I'm still, like, that quiet, shy kid. Um, but if, if yeah. I've grown out of it, that is great. No, that sounds amazing. So... Um, you're getting your master's right now. Yeah. Um, in creative writing? Yes. Okay, awesome. So I wanted to ask you, how did your parents and your community support you? And this may be, this may be something that you've just grown up with, so that this seems something that was really set in your heart and your parents were supporting you from there. Um, I'm 20 and a lot of my friends at 16s, a lot of my Sangat is around this like 20 age range. We're all university right now and we're in, we're pre-med, we're in engineering, we're doing something business, corporate related, and we're all on this like driven path, even if we have creative ventures and passions that we're also trying to work on. Yeah. So when I was around 19, that's when I got really um, engaged with like Sikh activism and like arts and poetry and performance and all that kind of stuff. Um, I discovered spoken word through YouTube, like just like scrolling through like video after video of poets who were just 
awe-inspiring like Sonny Patterson, Jasmine Manns, like Rudy Francisco, all those folks. Um, and my friends were also getting really excited about poetry as audience members, the way I was at that age, because I didn't perceive myself as a poet necessarily, but I, I loved it as someone who could just sit there and listen and take in someone else's art. Um, so at that age, my friends and I decided that we wanted to host um, a sick arts event called Azadi, um, centered around sick political prisoners. And bear in mind that we were we were 19. We were like first year university students. We were very excited about art, but we had no planning experience. Like we were just like all heart and no like logistics. <laughs> um, so we yeah. we tried our absolute best to like pull like this this event together. We flew out um, performers from Toronto and California. We had like some support from Maninder Singh, um, who is the president at the Smish Thirbad in Surrey. Um, and we just tried to do our best to to do something completely brand new, even though it was terrifying. Like the idea of like hosting like a huge event in a theater with tons of artists and like sound equipment and like a schedule was just like so so out of like our scope at that age but we we genuinely gave it our best shot and what was interesting was like at that age like i was in university i was um i was working on like like a bit of like psychology and and sciences and english and arts um in university um but i was i wasn't totally sure what i wanted to major in or minor in or anything like that um and school was not exciting to me when i realized how how much there was to like learn about like sick activism like at that age i was just like i don't even care about my classes right now i'm so engaged with like hosting this event i want to like put all my energy into that and i was just like not even focusing on my stats class or like my math courses or anything like that um and i remember my friends being like jasmine like you didn't come to class the other day and i was like it's fine it's fine i'm gonna pass it's fine don't even worry about it and then um i remember my i remember my my parents being like what where are you going like what, what are you guys working on like what are you doing and i was like this is like the event we're hosting and i'm so excited about it and everything and my parents like justifiably so like i think that they were concerned in the same way that my friends were concerned when i just kind of put school aside um so i completely understand yeah. why at that age they were kind of like are you guys sure about this like shouldn't you just kind of like leave this to someone else to organize mm-hmm. is it really like a big priority for you right now um so my parents were like a little hesitant um but i wasn't hesitant <laughs> that's the thing like i yeah. knew in my heart that this is what i wanted to be doing and there was not a single thing anyone in this world could have told me to stop me <laughs> so like yeah. i i'm gonna be honest like my parents would be like you guys need to stop with your meetings like go do your homework <laughs> like like go study oh and i'd be like yeah yeah okay and then I would like tell my parents that I was like going to the movies with my friends or something and then meanwhile I'd be going to like a a Zadi meeting (laughs) to organize our event which is really bad but like that's like how badly I wanted to do this and then what's funny is like when when it was all said and done and the event was actually happening my parents were there they were like oh my god like you guys did it (laughs) like like they were like wow like you guys actually did this and then as soon as i saw it i was like yeah this is what i'm talking about like y'all didn't believe i could do it and here it is um and then they they got it like when they were like singing and that's kind of been like the the theme of like my life with my family as well like my parents will be like hmm like are you sure about this and i'll be like yep and i'll just go ahead and do it no matter what anyone tells me and then when it actually happens they're like oh like you actually did (laughs) publish a book that's cool okay we see the vision now um so i've i've I very much just had to kind of like be very 
um, clear about what I want, even if other yeah. people around me are kind of more hesitant. When I when I want something, I just kind of go for it, especially like with like my yeah. writing and my my art stuff and my career mm -hmm. hopes. Um, and obviously, like there's gonna be like no's along the way. Um, and I and I also want to say that I think that it's human that our parents react with hesitance sometimes because like you have like all these kinds of things are very new like i think that yeah. for a lot of our parents the idea of like pursuing a career as like a writer was just not something that was even on the list of things that was like yeah. a possibility so there's like a hesitance because they want us to find something that they feel is going to like be stable and like help us through the highs and lows of life in the long run um yeah so i don't blame my parents for being hesitant um at all right. i just had to kind of show them like what my vision was and i and i think that i proved that um so ever since then like i think like i have been one to just kind of go for what i for what i want um whether it's like traveling um working full-time as a writer i'm um, doing my master's in creative writing um I just, I think that like if you're if you're the kind of person who who genuinely knows what you want, there's no, for me at least, like there's no reason to like succumb to a no from something external. Yeah. Because I don't feel like as a person I would be happy the way that I am um, if I put myself into a box and did what I was told. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't think that my life would feel as fulfilling as it does and and that's ultimately what i choose because at the end of the day like our lives are very temporary um yeah. we've known that gurbani tells us that all the time like to our face not yeah. to be like harsh and cold but to be like real um and knowing how like temporary i am i want to do what fulfills me um because at the end right. of the day it's just me and my soul and not like all of this external noise mm -hmm. about like what my life should look like um so i'm cool with with ruffling feathers sometimes yeah no that makes sense um there's when i was a couple years ago when i was like about to i was applying to universities for my undergrad um there's this virgie that i've grown up around angud singh um he went to columbia and got a degree in journalism and he works for vice news now and does amazing groundwork about um punjab and our in our history and covers some powerful stories and um incredible moments in our history in, in our current history right now that's being written and he told me he made it very clear to me at that age that our parents didn't have this option but we have that blessing of being raised with stability with privilege more than the previous generation to be able to venture into things that are a little bit more exciting to us something that fulfills our soul and we don't have to worry about that responsibility as much yeah it's 100,000 percent of privilege um and it's like one that i'm so grateful for um and i'd hope that like opening the door in this way just keeps like opening more doors for like the generation yeah. that comes after us and that to me is like the most exciting thing just to be able to do this work in what feels sometimes like a first time um mm -hmm. i think that when you do when you have the chance and the opportunity to like you know follow your heart's calling um what happens is that other folks suddenly see themselves or see the possibility mm -hmm. of themselves and ima can imagine themselves doing that exact same thing. And that is like what I love about this. Like just me writing, yeah. you know, even working on like screenwriting or like writing for television, writing yeah. for film um, through my masters. Just the fact that I can do that and some someone out there could 
look at that and be like, hey, like maybe I should be a screenwriter. That is the coolest yeah. thing ever to me. Um, especially like the idea of like gores, younger gores, like being excited yes. about like writing and, and journalism and like lit- literary arts. It's like the joy of my life. It's so cool. It is. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned this um, a couple of moments ago, how when you started off attending open mic nights and organizing open mic nights, you weren't performing or writing then. And I was listening to the 88 Cups of Tea episode and I wanted to ask you, how did you go from attending and organizing open mic nights to writing your own pieces? Like, what was that kind of transition? So um, I didn't even, I didn't remember to mention this, but at that first event at Azadi, um, I was originally just planning to organize everything, but I had a few friends who um, kind of as we were organizing were curious about whether I was planning to share anything at the event. And I was kind of like, uh, I don't see myself like as a stage person. Like, let me just do all of like the background stuff and just hide in the back and not be noticed, Um, which was like me a little bit at that age. Um, But my friends kind of encouraged me to to try and I decided that I would give it a shot um rewinding in time a little bit that just that past summer before before we started organizing I was at um Coors United camp I think I was um it was like my third or fourth time being at camp and it was such an empowering space like for us when we were younger it was just like a space full of like really cool down-to-earth like caring bandies um that a lot of us grew up in and found like our our senses of selves in um, so at camp, I performed a poem in, like, our cute little, like, safe space. Um, yeah. And that was my very first time, like, performing in front of, like, any audience. Um, so then that experience at camp was, like, my my inspiration to be, like, okay, maybe I could do this, like, in public as well. Um, so I gave it a shot um, performing. And I still remember how, like, the first time I performed, I was just, like, taken by how dark everything was around me because when you have stage lights on you you can't actually see the audience so it's just like you and darkness and like your poems you know there's people there theoretically around you but like they you kind of lose sight of them and I got into my poem and I just literally forgot the audience and I just let my emotions kind of take over in the way that I was performing that piece and then I finished and there was just applause and I just remember like Mm -hmm. how wild that felt um that whole experience of for the first time almost like being able to truly like say what was in my heart and share it with the world or like you know all the people in that room and then kind of being able to just walk off stage having like almost like let something out that needed to be like let out um and that was it for me like I was just like I love this so much I need to keep working on this and I almost developed this like really confident stage persona that I actually didn't always feel like I had, like, offstage, which is yeah. so funny because, like, over the the course of this decade, like, that stage empowerment that I felt, like, just having the confidence to, like, just say what I want to say on the mic has, like, slowly kind of trickled into, like, other aspects of my life, like, how I interact with, like, friends and family and, like, strangers and all sorts of things. Um, so my introvertedness first stopped by putting me on a stage (laughs) like like Mm -hmm. me being like super shy like it kind of just like slowly began to dissipate by like standing in front of audiences um and after that I was so like just enamored with poetry as an art form like for myself that I decided to take like creative writing courses in my undergrad I took like poetry writing Mm -hmm. and children's literature and fiction writing and so on and it was just like the joy of my life um I remember 
just effortlessly like getting really good grades in those creative writing classes where like I was honestly like I was struggling through the sciences and the psych and the anthropology and I also have no idea why I believed that I needed to take sciences <laughs> I think I was just like it's like a Punjabi thing like you just yeah. if you're going to university you better take all those bio classes and you better have like a BSc and whatever yeah. um but I genuinely didn't yeah. need them I, I my heart was in the English side of things way more um but regardless I took the creative writing classes loved them they were just like the fun parts of my my undergrad experience and I believed at that age that they were just always going to be like a hobby or like a fun side thing um because after my undergrad I went and became a teacher I became a grade four teacher um got my teaching certificate and I think that was like my my realistic quote-unquote plan for life um but even then, like, I knew in my heart that, like, I had this manuscript in me, I had a book in me, I had something to give the world um, through my art. Um, and that's a whole other story, like, how that manifested. But um, it took me a while to find my way in school. Mm-hmm. I really struggled at times, which is so interesting because I'm doing my master's now. But, like, in my undergrad, mm-hmm. like, I was, like, there were times when, like, I just failed classes, like, three or four classes. And I remember, like, it getting to the point where, like, if I'd failed one more class, I would have um been kicked out of my undergrad program in English um or like my bachelor of arts program and I had to really just pause and be like okay like I need to actually focus on school as well as my art because this is not sustainable either um yeah but I it took me a while to like find my way in school and figure out what what it was that brought me joy and it took me a while to mm-hmm. also unlearn that just because science and math did not come intuitive to me that I'm still smart like, that was, a, that was yeah. a thing. I just thought that, like, if I couldn't get math, then I was just not an intelligent person. And I don't know what socialized mm-hmm. me in life to believe that um, because it's very much not true. It's, like, I think that we all have, like, our calling in life and there are all sorts of intelligences, plural. Yeah. Um, but we're just, um, we're taught through, like, the school system, through, like, society, through, like, just cultural norms that, like, um, there's just one way through life. And I, I vehemently believe otherwise. For sure, I believe the I believe that. Um, I think we're conditioned to believe that our intellect ties with our academic academic uh, success, and that's not true. I see so much of present me in the story that you've just told about who you were a decade ago, because that's quite literally the life I'm sitting in right now. So I really appreciate you sharing that because oftentimes, we, you know, we see someone who is at this wonderful place, and we don't know how they got there and so then when you see someone on this wonderful I I would say pedestal or or somewhere that you aspire to be one day you look at that and you see where you are and you get absolutely disheartened so sharing this is I appreciate you sharing this like it really means a lot yeah I feel that and I also feel like um these things can feel like so lofty and attainable like having a book out there in the world but there are a million and one steps that come before then Um, And the first step was just like getting through my undergrad and finding my way through that and realizing that I could finish my undergrad and then it was believing that I could become a teacher and then knowing from experience because I'd pushed myself and done the thing that I wanted even though I had people saying you're never going to be a good teacher or you're never going to get through your undergrad or whatever um, that I had that bit of confidence that was like hey maybe I should try this book like maybe I should give myself a chance. Um, and maybe I should apply for my master's and maybe I should apply for that scholarship for my master's and see if like I can get funding for my research Um, and then when these things like happen just because I had the audacity to be hopeful and the audacity to believe in myself like beautiful things happen Um, and it's like just one step at a time 
the book like was the end product of like a like a million and one steps like i said um yeah. and like writing a novel like a an 80,000 word novel was like the end result of writing sometimes just 500 words a day yeah like just taking little steps to these like goals that feel that look very big when you see the end product but um are yeah. built brick by brick for sure, I agree. So the first book that you ended up putting out in 2019 was When You Ask Me Where I'm Going. And I remember ordering this and it's beautiful poetry and prose. And then I I think with technology, I've lost a lot of my attention span. And so poetry, I can grasp it. And I, I started reading Edgar Allan Poe in seventh grade, which was quite dark for a seventh grader, but it was, I was just going through things. And so that was who I was reading then. Um, and I expanded into Bolesha and a lot of Sufi poetry. Um, but with, sorry, with the, when, you, when you asked me where I'm going, I remember the chunk in the book that goes into Giddin and Sahara's story. I like froze and went through those pages so quickly. And when I realized that that was the story that was going to get expanded, and if I tell you the truth, I was so excited. Um, but to the readers who don't know, when you ask me where I'm going, it talks about wonderful things like code switching the ideal sick girl, like challenges of a daughter-in-law, domestic violence, um, the Punjab police, and you're the star, your crown as well. And um, seeing a poem about Gurdanak Devji, seeing a poem about, you know, what the ideal sick girl should be felt so comforting to me. I've talked to Nub the poet a couple of times, and we've talked about how women within any faith are scrutinized a lot more than what men or men would be and our communities set us at unattainable standards at times. And that poem about the ideal sick girl, it, I really feel it because I would love to tie the star one day. And at the same time, I would love to not be insecure about my facial hair one day. So it's such a, it's such a like toss and turn constantly. And that poem gave me a lot of comfort that, okay, we are all maybe struggling with this of what we should be because Sikhi is like your individual journey and I've mentioned this so many times in different podcasts, like it is truly your connection with your guru. It's not something that's the same for everyone. It's your one-on-one -on -one connection and there will be no ideal sick girl. I hope so. I hope we can break that. And I love that you found like pieces of yourself in that poem. I think that my hope in including those poems was just to like reveal the ways in which all of us, um, like all of us are just gasping for air at times um and we see all these folks around us who seem like perfect and like just like they've got got it all together and like no one really does we're all like struggling in our own ways um and i think that when we can be genuine about that pain um and the things that are hurting us and the things that are like feeling so un impossible that like you know it's hard to like get up in the morning we we serve each other better because no one is really served by pretending that we're all, we've all got it together because we don't we do not <laughs> for sure no i totally agree with you my i've been really grateful to find community and sangat from my punjabi my sick friends but then also from my best friends who have nothing to do with our culture and community um and that's made me more and more comfortable with like my body hair and my case which was so interesting to me that like people who weren't even of the actual faith brought me closer to my guru um because within our own community there's a lot of judgment you know i think that like we have we come from generations of women who have been socialized to feel like they are never enough mm -hmm. 
so my mom knew my pain and so she's never she's also very interestingly she never encouraged me or discouraged me when it comes to my body here and my gaze she's never removed it herself off of her body but when i was getting bullied and when i was struggling she showed me a kind of grace and patience um when i wanted to remove my body hair and then when i wanted to stop removing my body hair she, she came with that same kind of love both times and she was like you do what you want to do and she's always guided me back to gurbani back to my guru because she's like i can't tell you the right thing like i am here to support you in whichever human form i can that my guru sent me to support my child in but like what this means to you and your sikhi is only something your guru can answer you with but she's never i remember she snapped at a handful of people and family members and you know like the extended family in india that comes and comments on you she snapped at them she's like she doesn't need to do that i so love i love that. that oh my goodness i am so happy that like your mom just like snaps back because that's like the biggest thing i think that when people think that they are entitled to make comments about your body and no one and culturally like it's like no one speaks up about it because it's just like almost like a conversation like a weird conversational thing where like yeah. auntie will just like be like we're bored sitting here let's talk about this person's appearance <laughs> um and no yeah. one no one acts like it's like weird and therefore it just continues but when you tell someone you shut someone down they're never gonna say it again and that's how it should be um so yeah. to have like an ally in your mom like that is the most like amazing thing ever so like props yeah, to your mom it's a big blessing it's a big, big blessing and I hope I can be that for younger girls. Like there's a couple of them come and talk to me and have asked me about my journey with my gifts. And I told them, I was like, if you can try to find the resilience and the connection with your guru to not remove it to begin with, it'll be a great step. But even if you do struggle and you and you feel like, okay, right now is just that's that's the step you need to take. I was like, I'll support you nonetheless and we'll find a way to connect you with your guru because I think there's a huge misunderstanding that not misunderstanding but I think there's just so much pressure on women that if you do remove it you're a bad sick and if you keep it we'll hear scrutiny from the community so then you're like well what the hell am I supposed to do at the end of the day I think that women in general across religious communities um just across like society like we are constantly in a pressure cooker um in all sorts of ways um and social media is like overwhelming and consuming algorithms are set up to make us continuously see one particular thing and if you know you're someone struggling with your insecurities and you click on like i don't know like a picture of like um a celebrity who's got like you know cheek filler and like lip injections and like botox and all that kind of stuff then suddenly instagram is going to do what it does as a capitalist platform and show you a million and one pictures of those things and reinforce like your insecurities um Mm -hmm. so i feel it like we're all under pressure in like really really intense ways and i think that like the most healing thing is like sisterhood and love and like reaffirmations outside of these spaces that like we are worthy that we are cared for and loved and valuable regardless of what the world tells us we're supposed to be yeah i totally agree so that's what when you asked me where i'm going really did for me um when it comes to if i tell you the truth this story gave me a sense of hope and strength when I finished the book at three in the morning, but I wanted to ask you if you could you give the readers a little bit of like a summary of what the book is, just to introduce them. Um, so if I tell you the truth, is a fictional novel. Um, it's written both in poetry and in traditional prose. So I combined um, like some sections of poetry that are written in the voices of the characters with um, sections of traditional fiction. 
um, also written in the same characters' voices. Um, so it's a cohesive fictional story. Um, and it follows the story of a young Punjabi woman named Kiran, um, who's 19 years old when she first comes to Canada. And she's carrying a secret, which is that she's pregnant out of wedlock. Um, and her family doesn't know at this point, um, and no one in the world is like privy to her secret except for herself, really, um, save for like one or two other people. And we follow what it's like for her to make the decision to keep that child um, and to anger the people around her in the process and to basically alienate herself from community and like family um, through this huge, pivotal, very personal decision that she makes. Um, so the story is told in Giddens' perspective and then we also switch into her daughter's perspective, Sahara's perspective, once her daughter um, gets into middle school and high school. Um, so it's a dual perspective story about motherhood, about being a Punjabi daughter, about navigating um, abuse and trauma and figuring out what it is to just be yourself in a world that constantly wants to stifle your voice as a young woman. Um, and it was... It was genuinely one of the most like challenging projects I've ever worked on in my life um, to combine like different mediums as well as um, like visual art in this book um, to write a story from the perspective of a mom and a daughter intertwined in one to write a fictional novel in general. Um, yeah. It was like a wild, just unexpected journey. Um, and I'm so happy that I pushed myself to get through all those drafts and bring this book into the world. Um, because it showed me that I can. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like sometimes you don't know that you can do a thing until you just do it. Um, and once I realized that I could write a novel because here it is in front of us, um, that gave me the courage to then ultimately keep writing fiction. Um, and that's what I've been doing for the last few years, just like working on like fictional novels and things like that, as well as poetry. Yeah. So if I tell you the truth, when I read it, um, I was introduced by it by Sikh Family Center, one of um, the interns that was working there at the time, Thandeep Gaur. And um, when I read the book, it, it, it explores very heavy topics such as sexual violence. Um, and this was around the time, I would say October of 2020, when I had learned about the Maryland case. And I've never grown up going to Sikh camps. I just, my parents never took me mainly because every summer we would be in India and in Punjab, we would be back home. So my Sikhi really comes from Grasti, from my family, most foremost. Um, so when I heard about the Maryland case, I was infuriated. I was confused. Um, as someone who had never been to those camps, I was like, I was angry. I was like, this is what this is for. Um, and so that was when I created the sexual violence toolkit. And so I want to tell our readers a little bit more about that. I had seen Stanford around that time create a Black Lives Matter toolkit and I thought that this would be really impactful for us as a community because alongside Me Too movements, minority communities need something a little bit more specific, a little bit more specific approach to cater to their experiences. So women in South Asian communities, specifically Punjabi and Sikh communities, are oftentimes unable to identify their trauma and ask for help due to a language or a cultural barrier. And so this project specifically is a guiding document to aid survivors and allies with resources that are specifically designed to keep South Asian and Punjabi communities in mind. And the toolkit defines different forms of abuse and trauma, mental health resources, forms of healing, and provides resources such as hotlines, helplines, shelters nationwide across Canada, the United States, and England so far. 
And we've worked alongside our mentors at Sick Family Center to gain insight, knowledge, edits, and guidance. And the toolkit is Gurukirpa finally entering Gurdwaras, which are sick places of worship, with trained professionals to discuss further how we can provide safety and support for our victims. And I know you've done a little bit of work with SFC. I have. So um, Sick, Sick Family Center is so cool. Like, they are genuinely doing such necessary work. And I think that the work that they're doing is so specifically impactful because they are trauma informed. Um, they respect the confidentiality of like survivors and like abuse victims who come to them. Um, and they don't like push like one route or, or like one plan of action on like folks who like come to them for support. Um, so it's like very much like a safe place that like so many people in our community like direly need. Um, I got the opportunity to do um a zoom event like a creative writing workshop with sick family center and i remember like as we were planning the event we wanted to con i think that we were planning it around domestic violence um awareness month um but we wanted to create a space that would not be triggering for folks who are coming there who may themselves have been through like some of the experiences that we're going to discuss um so we chose to like very conscientiously pick like writing prompts and like discussion topics and things like that that would build the the attendees up and not break people down and like not put them in a position where like they need um you know like healing after the workshop because that that can sometimes yeah. be like a situation in our community where like everyone jumps to talk about it you know an, a really traumatic subject but the the conversation is not trauma-informed there's not like counselors mm -hmm. there ready to um reach out to folks like if they're feeling triggered um, there's no follow-up with survivors or victims. Um, there's like ultimatums pushed onto victims of like what they need to do. Um, so I'm really grateful that like I got to like work with them in a very like empowering way and not a way that would just like open up these conversations and leave people hurting. Um, I think that's like what's been really cool like just this past year and the past couple years is like we're seeing people really wake up to how important it is to confront sexual abuse in like religious spaces and sick spaces specifically. And I think that the pain that a lot of us felt like growing up was that like, there weren't a whole lot of adults around us who really wanted to deal with issues of abuse in ethical ways. And I think that broke a lot of our hearts. Um, I just remember yeah. like being like really young and hearing about like abusers in my local community and, and turning to like older, or six for help um because like you know some of my friends had been like harmed by by abusive people pretending to be like like i'm with or six and um i just remember like no one caring like no one genuinely caring or being like you guys should just stop talking about it or being like yeah this is over just like stop bringing up the past or like he's changed or blah 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 but there was never like any sort of protocol or like, community guideline or like effective yeah. like like a, a route of dealing with these situations that everyone had collectively agreed on it was just like well we decided this and those guys decided this and we're just going to keep it quiet and blah 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 um and it left like a lot of us feeling unsafe um and feeling as though no one cared um no one cared about like the safety of our friends no one cared that my you know like my sisters were hurting um and it just left me angry like so angry and and i think that a lot of that anger channeled into if i tell you the truth um because like we follow like Giddens' experience with sexual violence in that book. Um, yeah. And I remember even as I was writing the novel, 
there was like an abuse situation going on in my local community um that caused harm to like people that i know and all of that anger and that helplessness that i kind of felt when that was going down manifested in like the way that i wrote the poems and the fiction in that book because i think that at that time i was like i just feel like voiceless outside of my writing um and i feel like if if i can imagine what a journey towards justice could look like for these fictional people like maybe just maybe we can see this come to life in real life as well um and that to me is also the power of fiction um to be able to imagine the world we want to live in um or to be able to imagine possibilities that can kind of feel out of reach to us um Mm -hmm. is to then create an avenue through which it can come to life in real life for sure no i totally agree with that when you're talking about um about being so frustrated screaming and yelling and, and vocalizing that my sisters are hurting and there are people that are amritari men that um just the community takes their side over ours i was talking to my mom the other day and i was mentioning how painful it is because when i see people a group of people who are probably drinking and smoking and i don't like to drink or smoke so if I pe- see people engaging in activities like that, I can see, okay, these aren't my type of people. Let me just take a step back and find my people. But when someone in Guru Maharaj's Sroop, in full Maharaj's Sroop, does that, like, tede kam, those putte kam, those in- that injustice, trying to comprehend that as a 20-year-old who's barely at the edge of adulthood, um, trying to grasp that has been so complicated and difficult and painful for me because i i remember i looked at my mom i was like i thought these were supposed to be good people for us and that is a different kind of like heartbreak but it it really does pain me because of the amount of stories i've heard of what of people in our in guru's surup that have just really hurt young women young girls I feel that and that pain is and that heartbreak is real because it is a heartbreak it's a form of heartbreak when you have like you come into the world like hopeful and like earnest and then people just like completely shatter all of your like hopes and expectations of like how the world should be that's real um and I think that like it's a beautiful thing to like come into the world and and be like what's the word like to just like see the best in people you know what I mean like I think that's a beautiful trait to have um and it's unfortunate that people like betray that trust and i also wanted to add that like there are like so many things in my life like i have so many brothers who have also been through abuse and the way that like these conversations happen it's like you know like you you people feel like you're a safe person to talk to so they'll kind of like disclose things and then sometimes we'll just like talk about like you know what happened afterwards like did you ever you know was there justice in this situation? Like, is this guy still being abusive? Like, did you ever tell anyone? Like, was there, like, any sort of, like, legal recourse? And and the answer usually I find from Sings is that, like, no, I just felt, like, you know, really isolated. I felt um, embarrassed. I felt, like, less of a man um, because I went through this. And there's, like, so much to unpack there in terms of, like, what's happening to, like, our yeah. our brothers and, like our nephews and cousins um that they feel as though like they just can't tell a single person because like it affects literally who they are as a person as a man as a boy as a sing 
to speak up. But the reality is that, unfortunately, this is painfully commonplace. There are people who have been through this that and who are have friends who have been through it, who don't even know that their friends have been through it because it's so it feels so embarrassing um and that's why like yeah. our boys are hurting like that's why like our brothers and our sons and our nephews and our cousins are in so much pain and our fathers and our you know uncles yeah. <laughs> and our older vgs <laughs> like there's just so much yeah. pain in our community that's been like bottled up um with nowhere to go because of like patriarchy um because of how society conditions boys and men to to feel like they are allowed to be boys and men um it's it's really heartbreaking and i hope that that we can have like very open honest conversations about this because when we start opening up about it that's when someone's like hey actually i've been through the same thing but you don't know who to trust sometimes and you don't know what the right space is um and you don't know if someone's gonna be like oh well that wasn't real because like that doesn't happen to men or that doesn't happen to boys you know what i mean Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. I took a women, gender, sexuality studies class last semester in school, and I, the pain that I, th- I think it really ties in the pain that men and boys feel when they go through trauma like this. Um, it speaks to a different level because their mental health is tied in with gender as a social construct. Yes, and the way they're conditioned to be quote unquote men, quote unquote boys. And that kind of pain, I, they're not given the resources and the aid to be able to help and aid to that. And I think I'm very, very grateful for Sick Family Center to work on gender-based discrimination and violence. So they're open to helping anyone and everyone. And and they're doing really powerful, they're taking really powerful steps within that. Something that I've like slowly started working with them is the consent workshops that they're doing for kids my age, for teenagers and young adults that are my age. So we start having these conversations about consent at our universities and, and understand that from a younger mindset. Like, I'm sure we're in our 20s or early 20s. That's like still a little bit older. It should have started a lot, a long time, a longer time ago. But that a learning about things like consent. And sometimes when we are in that conversation, you're like, oh, this happened to me. I didn't really know that's what that was. But I but I guess I guess that's my trauma now. And I think that's exactly that's exactly what it is. I think that um, I vividly remember reading um, a write up by a gore who had experienced abuse and she shared her story online a few years ago. And what was so striking about her story was that she said that she didn't realize that she was being abused until um, her grade nine like sex ed class where her teacher talked about abuse and her teacher talked about like what sex was and what um, what consent was. And that's when she found out what was happening to her because no one had ever told her what had been happening to her as a kid. It was just like a thing that happened um, that seemed mm-hmm. so confusing. Um, and I think, I genuinely think that dialogue is like the first step to creating safe space and safe communities. I think that part of like our issue as a community is that we just don't have open conversations about like like health issues even. Um, con- yeah. to- the topic of consent, the topic of like what sexual assault is like no one wants to talk about that because it feels so taboo and in the process we're leaving like basically like dark areas for abusers to walk in and be like well um this is where i can kind of like shape what that narrative is for that person um which is how abusers operate abusers operate through um confusion um through um kind of shaping 
the psyche of like their victim and telling them what is normal and what is not. Um, as a teacher, I know that there are statistics that tell us that when younger children are told um, about boundaries and consent and, you know, that fact that you're no one, people aren't allowed to touch you um, in your private areas, those kids are ultimately safer from, from abusers because they just know the language that will keep them safe. Whereas yeah. like children who are not, you know, privy to those conversations about boundaries and consent in a child appropriate way um, are more at risk of abuse. No, I fully agree with that. And that was something that was really important to put in the toolkit to make sure that we're able to have that conversation in our Punjabi schools and talk to kids from a young age. Because I have a little brother who's 10 years old and um, my parents never allowed me to go to sleepovers. And I'm very, very grateful that they had that boundary. So I'm an adult now and now I'm obviously allowed. But um, my entire childhood, I was not. And we made that kind of same rule with my brother and having that conversation with him so that he knows he, that what's wrong and where your boundaries are is so imperative to bring that into like little to little kids in Punjabi schools through the sexual violence toolkit, telling them these are what your boundaries should be. This actually um, freaks me out a little bit because in our community, there's a lot of grooming. Actually, if no one knows what grooming is, um, childhood grooming or child grooming is establishing an emotional connection with a child and sometimes with the family to roll to lower the child's inhibitions with the objective of sexual abuse and marlo garrison says this one thing that i read in a study that grooming can occur at any age and it has and has to do a great deal with gullibility insecurity religion and culture and it starts by targeting a vulnerable person and then building that trust with them that's freaky. That freaks me out. That scares me to death because there are so many, so many young cores and things that I know that go through this and have deal- dealt with it. 100%. I also think it's, I think like the, the thing about grooming is like, it's, it's, it's built on trust. Like when, when a victim feels like they can trust a person or like a person feels like a safe space for them, that's where like abusers kind of like have their, their foot in the door and they're able to kind of like wedge that open and like carry on like carry out abuse like eventually after like months or weeks or days or whatever it is of like convincing a child that like they're a trustworthy individual um so it can be so confusing for a kid when you know let's say your your santhya teacher turns out to be predatory or gatka teacher turns out to be predatory because that's like your person that's been like your person for like so long who like helps you at like a soul level or like just an emotional level just be your best self um to like learn this thing that you love to like engage in sikhi which is something that you love um and there's like a specific calculated cruelty and violence to that um that is really terrifying and it's so hard it's like because the thing is like we have these conversations about abuse but then what I've found, like, just talking to my friends who have gone through experiences like that, they it was so hard for them to figure out that they were being abused because this gray area had been built for so mm-hmm. long that this, you know, that it wasn't like a stranger coming up out of nowhere and doing something harmful. It was like, yeah. your, it was it was the teacher that you, you looked up to and you thought was like always going to have your back and he was going to protect you and he was going to, um, you know, keep you safe that does this kind of stuff. And there's, like, a specific, like, violence to that and, like, a confusion to that um, that makes it hard to kind of, like, pick apart what's going on, really. For sure. 
And from speaking to a couple of people that have been so kind to and been so vulnerable to share their life with me um, and through their permission, of course, I just want to say that that leaves a lasting impact on how you view relationships, romantic, platonic or otherwise in your life moving forward. And that ends up being thousands of dollars in therapy trying to unlearn that. Because because I, th- I think when you're betrayed on that level, especially when it comes to, like, your Santia teacher, you know, that's when, like, your sicky, your most vulnerable, valuable thing gets intertwined and in, in with betrayal, with abuse, that, um, that kind of trust becomes so... Trust from there moving forward just becomes such a complex thing for you then. For sure. And I, I want to, like, also affirm that these things should never, ever, ever happen. There should be no sick child in the world that feels afraid of going to Santia. Or feels afraid of going to Gatga, mm-hmm. or just doesn't want to come to the Gordo anymore because like they've had this experience. Like that should just never have happened, and it never should happen ever again. And I think that we, in this day and age, have the tools to do our best to make sure that like you know we're we're vetting people that are in these spaces. We have the tools to make sure that like adults are not, um, you know, with kids where there's like no supervision from other adults, or that there's like no. Um, like there's no like safety guidelines of like how that should be like um we have the means to make sure that like these things don't happen i think that we just need to like collectively work together to like input them or like put them in place for sure i completely agree with you that's a lot of really heavy stuff it is um, it's very I'm really, heavy i'm really glad yeah i'm really glad i talked to you about it um something that sick teens is hopeful to do soon which i remember you and i were talking about this before we started recording is holding a space for survivors um, and victims because I think what happens a lot of times is an issue will occur, uh, a case will happen, whether it's here, whether it's in England, whether it's somewhere in Canada, um, and all the 25 different organizations that are focused on sexual violence in our sick communities will jump and hop on that one case for the two weeks that it's trending on social media. And then Ustubad, there's no space held for the survivors. There's no help space held for actual work being done, um, which pains me and infuriates me. And as we were working on the sexual violence toolkit, that was something where I was looking around to the adults and I was so baffled, so baffled that there are 25 plus organizations in our community and maybe two or three of them are actually doing the groundwork and there's not a single space being held for survivors. That's real. And I think that folks, when, when these kinds of things happen, when there's like a tragedy in the community or there's like a like a kind of a call to action, like people come with very sincere intentions. For the most part, I want to I want to believe that people have like mm-hmm. good intentions. Um, but I think that people fail to follow up, like you said, and that is a that is a real problem, um, especially when like there have there are survivors in those situations who have been like really triggered and they have like no one now to lean on for support um, because everyone's kind of like emotionally taxed and they're just like trying to take care of their own feelings um so that's why i feel like when these conversations happen like there needs to be a protocol around that before the conversation even starts there should be like counselors on call um resources put together like like the toolkit that you guys have created in place so that like there's an outlet afterwards um and i i genuinely hope that we're able to keep working on sustainable work like not just like work that comes together in one moment and is forgotten about like later on um like together like honestly we have the means and the tools to create the stuff that we need to see happen but we also need to 
do we need to have like the follow-up over like a committed period of time over like months and years um and we need those check-ins to like not be forgotten by everyone and we need everyone to like not be like oh sorry i'm busy i can't make the meeting this week you know what i mean like we need to really like recognize that as a priority and when you recognize something as a priority then you're gonna make time for it you know what i mean if something is just like kind of like on the back burner for you um and you feel like it's okay to like let things slide then like things will fall apart um and we won't see the change that we want to see but it's yeah it's it's got to something's got to give like we need to really change the way that we work in these spaces um and keep that energy like the energy is there but we need to like sustain it and find sustainable ways to take care of it and i think part of the issue as well is like um people who are activated on these issues like some of them are survivors themselves um and they come in with all the right intentions and then suddenly they're feeling like they're burnt out emotionally and they just need like a break and they just yeah. need like to rest their minds um and then that turns into people forgetting about like the next step um and nothing really happening um yeah. so i think we need to take care of ourselves and we need to take care of each other we need to put self-care into our protocols you know what i mean like yes. add that into our yeah. protocols so that we will still be there for the next meeting um and that we yeah. won't like feel like we just can't come back because that's real too for sure I 1000% agree. Um, I love talking to you about all the intricate aspects of our community and everything. Um, It really ties into a lot of what you've written and a lot of what you stand up for. Um, And I'm very, very grateful that we've had this at-length conversation of how it ties in with our Punjabi and our Sikh communities and spaces. Um, Just so we end off on a light note, I do want to ask you a couple of questions about what you're doing in the future and... And what it looks like now as you're getting your master's and what's going to happen moving forward. So creating the life that you envision as a writer, what are you hopeful to do in the future? So right now I am working um, on a fictional fantasy novel for teens. Um, I'm so excited about it. Like genuinely, it's the joy of my life and I can't wait. I can't wait to like finish it. And I feel like I need people's folks to like keep me on track with this because like I'm I get like really slow with my writing when I'm not on like a deadline and I'll just be like hmm, like yeah. I'm not feeling today or like I'm not feeling inspired today but I I am working on like a book that is like the joy of my existence um it's a Punjabi fantasy novel about a teenage Punjabi witch and her witch BB um and I don't want to give away anything else because I want I want the book to speak for itself um but it's all about like like witchcraft and like it's like the book of my dreams that I would have like loved to read when I was a kid who loved fantasy novels like Inkar and Harry Potter and all that kind of stuff um but to be able to like infuse it with like Punjabi-isms is like <laughs> the coolest thing ever um so so I'm working on the first draft um and just gotta keep at it so that it's like it's ready for the world um but that's what's happening in my yeah. life and then i'm working on my master's as well crossing my fingers and hoping that i graduate this summer and then my hope is once i have my my master's in creative writing to be able to teach like first year like entry level like creative writing in a university somewhere um and that we'll just see what happens with that it will it will literally just like happen when it happens and whatever life becomes yeah. after that will be super cool so that's exciting yeah that's what's happening in my life yeah i remember when i found you on when i found out about you i like went through youtube and searched for you as much as i possibly could i was like i want to see if there's anything that you've performed on youtube and there's a couple of things 
um, that I could find, but I want to ask you, are you planning on touring anytime soon and doing anything like that, performing anywhere? I have no tour plans. I went on tour um, when my first book came out and then obviously COVID happened and then like events were just like not a thing anymore. <laughs> so like yeah. I've like weirdly enjoyed just like being in solitude and not performing for a while. Um, and I think like now I'm kind of like itching to be back on a stage. Um, so it might happen in like smaller spaces, like one off kind of like shows and things like that. Um, but I have no formal plans mm-hmm. at this point. Okay, I will fly too if it happens in small places and you and you mention it somewhere on your story. I will find a way to fly there. I love it. That'd be so exciting. Um, and lastly, I really want to ask you: Do you have any advice for young gores or any advice for aspiring young authors and writers? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess I just want like young gores to know that they're loved, and to know that like there are bandies out there in the world who care about them and that like they are not a burden um and that their feelings are like not so um annoying that like we don't want to listen to them like i want like younger gores to know that they can like reach out for help if they need it like you are not a burden you are not like like a tax on someone's energy like you deserve to be heard um and cared about and loved and um just know that you're loved like just please just know there's a community around you that cares about you so much and like I don't ever want you guys to feel alone (laughs) and that is like what I want to say to y'all and then in terms of like writing and authors I just want like young writers to know that like your your voice as a writer matters you might be like your worst your own worst critic and be like so hypercritical of like your own writing and just think that you're not good enough but I'm telling you that like Every single author feels the exact same way, whether it's me or, like, someone who's, like, a New York Times bestseller. Like, we are all, like, looking at ourselves like, oh, we suck. (laughs) And meanwhile, there's someone out there who's like, I love your writing. And it's just like, what? Like, really? Like, you love this writing? I was so hypercritical about it. So, like, please keep writing because we need your voice. Especially if you are, like, a gore writer or, like, a sick writer. Your voice is so desperately needed because there are so few of you out there in the world. There are so few of us out there in the world. Um, And no one of us can tell the entire story of what it is to be us you know what i mean like i can only speak to my own experiences and you can speak to your experiences and someone else can speak to their experiences but when we create like a library of our work that's when like we're gonna fill in those gaps um it can't just be that one person is out there like carrying the voices of all of us because it just doesn't work that way so please write please like pursue this if this is like your thing um feel free to like reach out to me if you want like just like writing advice or anything like that or you want to talk about like your work um because i'm so excited to see more more sick writers out there in the world i'm genuinely thrilled whenever i see these things happening that's amazing thank you so 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 much i really hope that resonates i i'm sure that will resonate with a bunch of people that resonated with me for sure um and i appreciate you so much for taking the time out to talk with us today thank you so much for having me thank you so much for having me of course um it's been so wonderful to talk to you and learn from you and share your story with other young teenagers young sick adults um thank you to our listeners we hope you enjoyed this episode you can follow jasmine on her instagram and follow us on the rahal podcast and 16's instagram thank you so much for listening bye